0: If you have your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 2, and uh, we'll finish John chapter 2 this morning. This is a really interesting passage because it's filled with drama and tension and lots of action. You may be familiar with this if you read John before. So, John chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 13 to verse 22. Verse 13 to verse 22. It goes like this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that jesus had spoken let me stop there this morning will you join me in prayer father we thank you again for this morning and lord as we come to your word we pray that you would be the one speaking to us this morning speak to our hearts O lord by the power of your spirit through the the preaching of your word speak to us lord and help us to hear your wonderful and most delightful voice we ask this in jesus name amen So in this short little passage, we read, you know, in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So John's really giving us this little timeline. After the wedding at Cana, which is the passage previously that John records for us, you know, when Jesus changes the water into wine. Now John kind of fast forwards to the Passover, which is actually in the modern times, it's around March or April of our month. So now the Passover, which is this wonderful national festival, this national feast that is kept annually by the Jews. It's kept in Jerusalem back in those days. And so we see Jesus and His disciples. You know, His family and those who were with Him. They go up to Jerusalem. and Mainly it's just go up because of the altitude. Jerusalem is on a hill. And so they walk to Jerusalem. And they're there to celebrate the Passover. And there in Jerusalem, there's this temple that is very, very important to the life of every Jewish person. The temple there is the central um, point of all their worship and we read that when Jesus comes to the temple in this instance he does something very interesting normally when you go to a place of worship you think of quiet humble approach you think of somebody who's searching their hearts and approaching God hopefully with all humility wanting to worship God and yet we read of this really interesting scene that when Jesus comes into the temple, the, the focus point of the Jewish worship, he does something that nobody would have thought. He, he makes a, a whip out of the cords lying around. He twines it all together and he makes this whip. He starts whipping people. He starts whipping the animals that are there, driving them out of the temple, out of the courtyards of the temple. This is, this is crazy. It's so much, so much drama. Why is Jesus doing this? Isn't he supposed to be meek and lowly? And yet he's driving all these things, these money changers and these traders, he's driving them out of the temple, causing this huge ruckus. We read that he overturned the table of the money changers. We're kind of wondering, why did this happen? Of course, we get the explanation when uh, John here quotes Psalm 69 verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. And so we see that Jesus' motivation is something to do with zeal, a love for His Father's house. But for us to understand that, I think we need to get clear in our minds what's happening in that temple when Jesus came in to see that scene. Especially for us, because we're so far removed from any experience of what temple worship would have been like in those Jewish days. So if you kind of just stick with me a little bit on this short history trip. If you guys remember a guy called Moses during those days when the Israelites were slaves to Egypt and God delivers them and He calls Israel His people and He gives them the law. He gives them these wonderful revelations of, of what God wants for how they ought to worship. And central in those laws was the laws about a tabernacle, a tent as it were. And it's there in the book of Leviticus. Now for us when we read the first five books of the, the Old Testament, you know, we get the stories and they're, we, you know, they're, they're interesting. We can get past them. And then as soon as we hit this wall called, you know, this, the law. And we just, see, we just see written, you know, this should be this long. And this needs to be this wide. And you need to do this and put this on. And you need to offer a sacrifice according to this. And do this and do that. It's so boring. We just go, why do we need to know how many cubits and how many cubits this and this, that is? What about the story? But in actual fact, for the Jewish people... The law was the centerpiece. All the story was merely uh, uh, wheels to carry the important thing. Which was the fact that God gave them the instructions on how to worship Him. God revealed to them, this is how you must approach me. And again, center in that was this idea of a tabernacle, a tent. And in that tent... God has promised, I will dwell there. My presence shall be especially there to meet with you and to bless you. And so in those 40 years in the desert, the Israelites, they would have had that tent there. And then the the next day when they're moving on, they would have lifted up the tent and packed it all up. And then when they moved to the new location, and they arranged the tent again and set it all up again. And the reason why they did that was because God had promised, I will be there in that tent, that tabernacle, to meet with you. We fast forward a few hundred years and we get to the time of David, the great king. And he has this thought in his heart, I want to build a house for God. He's established us in this promised land. We have rest from our enemies. I want to build God a house. And so God says, not you, but your son shall build a temple for me, a house for me. So we reach Solomon, builds this big temple. And then we fast forward another few hundred years and we get to the time of Jesus. The temple had been destroyed actually quite a few times. In the exile by the Babylonians and then by, uh, by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. and then, Now we get to this point when Jesus comes. And the temple here is something that's been renovated by the king there called King Herod. And he's been renovating it for 46 years. That's why we read the Jews said it's been 46 years in building. It took 46 years to get to this point. But the reason why the temple was so central for them was because that idea of the tabernacle is now the idea of the temple. God has promised us He will be there at that temple to meet with us. And that's why it's the central focus of all Jewish worship. And one of the ways that God has prescribed for them to approach the temple was by sacrifice. If you ever read the Old Testament, you'll notice there is a lot of sacrifice going on. The priests, when they're getting ready to to enter into their duty, they've got to sacrifice and sprinkle themselves with blood to purify themselves. When they bring sacrifices before them, they've got to wave the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the walls of the temple. On the the altar and all the things there. They've got to have a lot of sacrifice in order to approach God. And once a year on the day of atonement. The high priest is to take a spotless uh, animal. And sacrifice an animal in order to enter into the holy of holies. The holiest place in the temple. entered through a sacrifice. And the reason why we see so many traders there with their oxen and their sheep and their pigeons is really because people need animals to sacrifice. Otherwise, they can't approach God. This is the instruction that God gave us. If you want to approach me and worship, you've got to sacrifice in order to take away your guilt for your sin. And so we see the money changes and the traders probably thought to themselves, let's do a great service. We can have our stock here. We can have our, you know, our, our herd over here. And when people need to make a sacrifice and they've traveled for such a long way and they don't have an animal, hey, we're there. You can buy the animal from me and off you go into the temple. Now that in itself is not necessarily wrong, but what had happened is that they had now enroached into the courtyard of the temple. They were doing their business on temple grounds. So much so that they had turned the temple not into a place of humble worship, but as soon as you go in, what do you see? You see a market. You hear noise and the, the banging of animals. And you see people trading and, and changing money. And the house of God that's meant to be a house of prayer and worship. Of quiet adoration. Of humble and serious and sober sacrifices. has now been turned into this market. Where I assume the best of intentions. People there wanted to render worship as a service. But what about those who are just there to make a quick buck? Who didn't care one bit about God in the temple, but thought to themselves, this is a great gap in the market that I could fill and bring a lot of value to my business. And they used the temple of God to make money for themselves. And we see because of these things, Jesus and his love for God's house and his love for his Father, he drives out these animals. He drives out the people. He turns the tables of the money changers. He tells those who sell the pigeons, get out of here. Do not make my father's house into this, this market. Do not make my father's house into a market. And he drives them out. Now the interesting thing is that when the Jews come to approach him and they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And, you know, we, we, we can assume it's probably the leaders, the, the high priests who are there, the religious leaders who had the authority. They ask him essentially this question. Who are you to tell us that what we're doing is wrong? This has gone on for so many years. And, of course, people need to sacrifice. What's wrong with it? And here you are, some random guy from Nazareth, coming here and driving away and causing such a scene. Who are you to tell us these things, what sign do you show to prove your authority? What, sh- what sign do you show to prove your authority? And Jesus says to them something that they totally misunderstood. He says, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. That is the sign of Jesus' authority. And for them to hear that, they thought, This is ridiculous. It took us 46 years to build this temple up to what it is now. To do all the renovations and the repairs, to add on to it various places. This has taken us more than four decades. And this guy says, if you destroy it, I will rebuild it again in three days. That is impossible. That is not even... Nobody can do that in three days. Now think with me. Imagine if that is what actually Jesus meant. Imagine if Jesus meant, if you destroy this physical building, brick by brick, I will rebuild it in three days. If He did that, would that prove to us that He is definitely someone special? That He's got power far beyond a human being? That if He did that, and remade an entire building in three days that has been destroyed, would we rightly conclude This man must be a mighty prophet. He must be divine in his power and saying that I will be the one to raise it up. Would that be a fair judgment? I mean, I think that kind of makes sense. I don't know of anybody who could raise a building that's been destroyed in three days. And, you know, just to get our heads around a little bit more contemporary examples, I was researching uh, Buckingham Palace. You know that house that the queen lives in? That big palace over there apparently took them about... I think quite a few years to build and then the, you know, they kept on adding things and da 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 But I think the original building there took about eight years to build without all the renovations and whatnot. And that's a pretty big building. And if somebody told me, you destroy that building, raise it to the ground, or raise it up in three days, I would think, you know, even if you've got the most money in the world and you've got the best contracts, you've got all these materials ready to go, you could not possibly do it in 72 hours. Come on. That's impossible. And so if Jesus did that, that would be enough to prove His authority. And yet, get this, Jesus is saying, that's not even what I was meaning. John the disciple records for us, what Jesus actually was talking about was the temple of His body. He was referring to His resurrection. That when He was crucified and killed and buried, three days later, He would raise Himself up to life again. The building was incredible enough to think about, but do you know of anybody who could raise themselves up from the dead? Do you know of anybody who could have their body destroyed and then raise it up to eternal life, never to die again in three days' time? The incredible thing for me is that these Jewish leaders misunderstood it, but imagine if they didn't. They would have been shocked out of their mind. They thought building a building was hard enough. How about resurrection from the dead? What this passage is telling us, even right at the beginning of this gospel message, John points forward to the resurrection of Jesus, and he tells us, His resurrection proves without a doubt, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He alone can tell us how we ought to worship Him he alone can drive out all these traders and money changers and say to the jewish people the way you are worshiping god is wrong and he proves this by his resurrection from the dead so that's really the first point i want us to remember this morning jesus even in his earthly life he looked forward and he predicted his suffering that they would destroy this temple his body And he predicted that three days later he will raise up that body himself with his own divine power and he will be back to life, resurrected from the grave. He points forward to that great act as the final sign, the pointer, the evidence of his authority. And he tells us, because I have been raised from the dead, you ought to believe everything that I am saying. I mean, we get to the end of the passage. We read there in verse 22. Isn't that exactly what we see? The disciples remembered what Jesus had said after the resurrection. And they realized, whoa, He really has proved His authority. We really do need to believe every word that He says. Every word that He has told us. Every word that He has proclaimed. We have to believe in Him. Now friends, we are living after the resurrection. And we have the testimony of countless witnesses to tell us they have seen Jesus raised from the dead. And that historical fact is presented to us this morning, giving us the invitation to believe in the one who has authority to tell us how we ought to approach God. Jesus is raised from the dead. And because of that, We must believe in every word that He has said. That's the first thing we need to remember from this passage. But even in what I've said about Jesus having the authority to tell us how we ought to worship, we might be left wondering, well, okay, we know that it's not okay to make money out of worship matters. and to sell oxen and sheep and pigeons to make the temple of God into a house of trade? Okay, that makes sense. But how then are we to worship? if this is not the way what is the way and actually in this passage Jesus gives us a great hint you see he's talking about the physical temple but then he says to the Jewish people not just in a clever play of words to trip them but actually to tell them something really important he says destroy this temple now raise it up in three days and later on the disciple John recalls actually he was talking about the temple of his body That's not just Jesus playing word games to trick His opponents. That tells us something very, very important. You see, when Jesus, the divine Son of God, took on the human nature, He's visible because human beings are visible. You can see human beings. And yet we know from the Bible that God Himself is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. No man or creature can approach Him and see Him so how are we to know him if he is so unapproachable when we read of the incarnate son he is the radiance of the glory of god and the full exact imprint of his nature hebrews 1 3 we read in colossians chapter 1 that in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily what the bible tells us is that because god has taken on a human nature in the person of his son jesus christ we can now see god with our own eyes he has revealed him to us to the point where john the very same writer in his letter says in the first chapter of his letter 1 john whoever has the son has the father whoever does not have the son does not have the father what is all this telling us to use the language of this passage what this is telling us is that that temple, that physical temple in Jerusalem, that was just a sign, a pointer, something telling us of something far greater that was to come. God is not going to dwell ultimately in a little building. God will not ultimately be confined to one geographical location in Jerusalem. What that temple was telling us is that God has chosen a certain place for all his glory and his presence to dwell and that true and final temple is jesus christ his body is the temple of god and in the incarnate son we see fully the glory of god in all its fullness if you have the son you have the father jesus is the true temple in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily and so the temple in the old testament with all its regulations especially in the book of hebrews the bible explains to us all of that was to help us to understand more about the true temple that was to come and we read in hebrews for example all the sacrifices all the blood what is that telling us That God is holy and we need a substitute to atone for our sins. And animals could never fulfill that function because they kept being sacrificed. Which means that they never worked in its entirety. We still had sins to pay for. But then Hebrews says, but now that taught us. When we look at Jesus and He'll sacrifice once for all on the cross. It tells us that sacrifice was complete. And by His blood we now enter into the holy place with God. That in Christ, we can meet with God Almighty and know Him in His entirety. To be embraced by Him in Christ. Let me put it this way. In the Old Testament, when God promised the Israelites, build this tabernacle, He's promising in this place and in this way, I will be there to meet with you. The God of all creation, who made all things by the word of His power, has said to this people, If you come to me to that tabernacle in this way, I'll meet with you. I'll be there. I'll hear your prayers. I'll care about what you have to say. I'll meet with you. Now, in the full revelation of what God has to reveal to us, He's essentially saying to us this. In Jesus Christ my son I will meet with you if you come to me in the ways that I have instructed you I promise to meet with you in the fullness of my glory in Jesus Christ God has promised to meet anybody who comes to him through the way that he has prescribed and a little hint in verse 22 the disciples believed in his word that's really the way that God has told us the way that we are to approach the true temple to meet with God can you imagine God in his infinite perfections and his majesty and his beauty and his glory has promised to meet with you if you will come to him in Jesus Christ in trust and in faith of every word that he has to say if you have the son you have the Jesus is the true temple. And all who approach him will have God meeting with them. I mean, that informs everything in our lives. If you're struggling with anything, I need God's help. What confidence do you have that God will hear you? Unless you trust in that promise. If you come to me and my son, if I come to God in the name of Jesus, he has promised to hear me because Jesus is that true temple then that gives us every confidence to draw near to God in the name of Jesus. What confidence do we have that God will forgive us all our sins? How can we approach God in His holy temple when we ourselves are so filled with sins, so filled with evil? Why, Jesus has been sacrificed once for all to purify everyone who trusts in Him. That gives us confidence that we can meet with God in Christ this informs every area of our lives and especially this morning if you are here and you are not a Christian you do not believe in Jesus let me just say this the natural reasoning of this truth is simply this apart from Jesus if he really is the true temple there is no other temple For us to reject Jesus and to try to approach God in some other way is no way at all. God has given no promises to meet with us outside of Jesus Christ, His incarnate Son. And for us to approach Him in any other way, you may think to yourself, I will try the hardest 24-7 my whole life to do good and to worship God and to repent of all my sins. To do all the religious things like come to church and and talk about Jesus. But you yourself do not believe and trust in Him in your heart. That is no way at all. Because that is not the way God has told us we must approach Him. The only, only way for us to know Him is through His Son Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central focus of all our worship. And the Old Testament temple, again, was simply telling us and pointing forward the true temple who has now come. He has now come. The incredible thing is, again, we live on the other side of the resurrection. We now know in full what even the disciples knew in part. They didn't believe in Him until after the resurrection. And we know with certainty He has been raised from the dead he has all authority to tell us how to worship God and He has told us we are to approach God through faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word to us this morning. And Lord, we thank You for this incredible fact that You have chosen to promise that all who approach You through faith in Your Son will be met by You. You have promised that all Your glory and your presence dwells in christ and of course it must be, because in his person is united fully god fully man the second person of the trinity father we thank you so much for this wonderful truth and we ask that you would encourage all of our hearts with the fact that if we come to you through faith in the name of jesus we will be met by you you will hear us you will listen to us so lord give us faith Give us a humble and genuine trust in you, in every word that you have spoken. Help us to approach you through the name of your son, Jesus. And it's now in his name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.